we are. This is Shop Talk here at Drama Shop. I'm Zach Flock, Artistic Director, and I am joined today by... Elena Manchester. Happy International Women's Day. All right. Elena is our Associate <laughs> Artistic Director. It's not International Women's Day, Day, but you'd know that if you knew. But it was two days ago, so happy anniversary. It was, I remember. Every day is International Women's Day. Nice save. In my heart. Mm. And that, of course, (laughs) is Michael Haas, Drama Shop Business Manager, and also the director of our most recent production, Mr. Burns. A post-electric play. A post-electric play. By Anne Washburn. With surprise music by Michael Friedman. So, let's start off. Let's talk a little bit about Mr. Burns, even though it's closed. Uh, or will be closed probably when this posts. Um, we believe that you know the dialogue after the show is an important part of the process as well. So we'll have a little bit of that dialogue, and we'll just talk about whatever else comes up, whatever's on Elena's mind. Yeah. Michael's mind. Mm-hmm. My mind. So here we go. Yeah. So Mr. Burns, a post-electric play. Um, Elena, if you think back to when we were reviewing scripts yes. for this season, yes, um, which is fun but also a daunting task. Oh gosh, yeah. We kind of landed on this theme, and I'm one who's not a big fan of theme seasons, but that a lot of the plays we were talking about and looking at had to do with storytelling, Mm -hmm. with discussing what's important in our world, in our lives. Yes. Um, And Mr. Burns was one that kind of fell into that uh, pretty easily, actually. Yeah, it really did. So um, the show itself, Michael, I don't know if you want to give the quick kind of Synopsis of sorts. Sure, to, to... I'll give a I'll give a quick synopsis. Go for it. Uh, so, essentially, <laughs> you've been right, working on it for six or seven oh, weeks boy. at this point. So. Uh, <laughs> so the the show Mr. Burns, a post electric play, is is not really actually about The Simpsons. It's it's set in this uh, post electric world. Some catastrophic event has happened that we don't really get all the details of but the first two acts follow a group of these kind of uh, travelers you know, refugees what have you they're survivors of yeah. this of this event yeah, that has taken displaced place. people who are kind of roaming around uh, and the first act takes place and it's uh, around a campfire and they're trying to remember the episode of uh, The Simpsons, Cape Fear. And they're trying to recreate it and remember bits of dialogue and all of that. Elena is a big fan of Cape Fear, the episode of The Simpsons. Do you want to give us any insight? Uh, It was very (laughs) scary and full of fear. I did not see it. Cape Fear. I've seen the movie Cape Fear. Okay. Which one? Uh, The remake. Not okay, the original. So the De Niro. You saw the, the, De, Niro so the De Niro one. Which is referenced extensively in, in this production. Yeah. Um, Do you know because who played De Niro's character in the first one? He ends up... He, <laughs> I don't know his name, but <laughs> he played the, the, the head of the, uh, of the network in Scrooged. He was Bill Murray's boss. Is that really the same guy? Yeah. <laughs> I learned something today. See, this is an educational. I audience. know that because every time I watch Scrooge, my mom says, "You know who that guy is, don't you? Robert He's Robert this Mitchell, guy right? who played. Yeah. He was in Cape Fear. He was really scary." And I go, "I know that 
because you told me last time. Yep. But that's so, how I know him. So the Simpsons <laughs> episode, Cape Fear, is basically a, a spoof. I don't know if you want to call it a spoof, yeah. but sort of a recreation of, yeah. of Cape Fear, the movie, to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. In fact, a, a lot of it, the actual episode, is like some shot for shot, you know, as, as close as you can get in the Simpsons In world. a cartoon. Shot, shot for shot. Homage. Uh, so act one is those travelers kind of telling the story telling of the that story, episode. You know, trying to remember the story, you know, people throwing in different uh, quotes and such. Act two takes place seven years later. And the group is now this sort of traveling acting troupe. And uh, they, they go on this circuit, they go to different locations, and they perform these uh, episodes of The Simpsons that they remember. Uh, and there's this sort of barter system of like buying lines from people who remember. Ah. And it's the only, because they don't have any entertainment. They have no electricity, no TV, no TV, no... no radio. So all that they have, the common cultural mesh is Simpsons episodes and commercials. And so they put on these shows that are Simpsons episodes and commercials. Uh, and it, Act Two shows them kind of rehearsing. It's very sort of noises off mm-hmm. in that we see part of the show, but also the backstage mishaps that are going on and how these characters have evolved because it's the same characters just seven years later. Uh, then we take a really big leap. Then Act Three is 79 years into the future. And we see what and Washburn thought that this would lead to, this kind of arc of storytelling. Because as from act one to act two, you, you lose a bit of the details of the story. Right, they're staying know? less true to the source material. Exactly. Because they misremember, or just over time things Even kind of evolve. Even act one, you know, they misremember some things. Act two, some things are changed even more. By act three, the character Sideshow Bob, you know, is replaced entirely by Mr. Burns. And it's as the sort of big bad villain. Big there. bad villain, right. And it's no longer a comedic Simpsons episode. It's actually this kind of epic drama, almost an opera uh, that takes place. Uh, and the style is completely changed from this, uh, what we got used to for the first two acts, um, which posed a challenge, yeah. you know, yeah. in terms of, uh, but that's the plot. <laughs> so one of the, the cool things as, as Drama Shop followers, followers will know is that right now we are in the process of reconstructing our stage. So we're, we're currently sitting here in this space um, in an area where the stage used to be, but it isn't right now. Um, so what that means is basically we ended up in this, this kind of point in our season where we literally have no stage. And that kind of uh, opened your mind to some different design ideas. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about how that kind of came to be, what, what happens from act to act, and, and how we arrived there. So normally when, when one comes to see a drama shop show, as I'm sure you who are listening have come to see one of our shows, and if not, come. Please do. <laughs> uh, but you normally sit in our 48 seats that are you know, permanently there. 
for Act One in, in, in Mr. Burns' post-electric play, it is you could actually... probably just say Mr. Burns at this point. Just All right. save time. All right. <laughs> well, Mr. Burns, the first act. See is... how much time we just saved. <clears throat> and, and now we wasted that there time you go. again. There you go. Uh, it's in the round, so there there are a number of seats, and like the couch we're sitting on is is one of the seats that audience members can sit on. Uh, so you arrive kind of in this sort of deconstructed, post-electric, whatever was around mm -hmm. has assembled, and there's a campfire in the middle. Yeah, and there, there are there are tarps to block out a lot of the, the light from the lobby area. So once you kind of cross this threshold, you're, you're really kind of immersed into the world, even during the pre-show, uh, which is definitely an aspect that I wanted, is for, for the audience member to feel like they were in the world right. as soon as they kind of crossed that line. Um, so Act One takes place in the round, kind of around the campfire, just like the people there. Act Two, uh, we, we chase the audience out to the lobby for intermission so we can reset. Yes, and, and our, our, our trusty stage crew assembles in very rapid time uh, a, a stage uh, that kind of runs the, the center line. Mm -hmm. So basically uh, an, alley, an alley stage setup. Yeah, it's an alley stage setup, so audience is on two sides of the stage. And that provides the audience with a totally different perspective on you know, what they've seen. And depending on where you're sitting in that act, you're gonna see different things than if you sit in another spot. Um, so then we usher them out one final time yes. for act three, and, and we have a giant scene change. Yeah, a lot of things happen. And for act three, you actually sit in our normal 48 seats uh, and it's a, a curtain is pulled back and there is a large proscenium stage there all set up uh, and that, so sorry to cut you off yeah, so yeah. some folks might think okay well that's you know kind of gimmicky what's the point of that how does that do you think serve the story how does it fit into to the overall story you're trying to tell that evolution of seating well and, 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 and Washburn kind of gave uh, a lot of this in reading her notes on the play, is this was a play about cultural artifacts and how they progress through time. And so she wanted to take something that we're all aware of, or a lot of people are aware of, The Simpsons, and see what would happen if you extended that over a long timeline. Sort of like how we view something like Shakespeare or, you know, Oedipus or something like that. Uh, and so really what Mr. Burns is, is a play about the nature of storytelling and its evolution. So we start off in the first act with really kind of oral tradition where we're sitting around a campfire, we're telling stories from memory. There's no written text, there's nothing. There's just our memories and we're telling the story and then it's repeated and repeated and repeated. In act two then, uh, we get into a little bit more of 
there is a script at this point. A little more point. structure. Yeah, a little bit more structure. And uh, personally, I compared it to the, the time period with uh, the pageant wagons. And they would kind of pull these shows around and go from, from town to town. Uh, where there is a bit of structure, but they also kind of change it based on the location that they're going to. Um, so they talk in the play about, you know, cutting out different cities because some episodes are less popular than others. Uh, and that, again, happened historically. Mm -hmm. And then the third act is very, you know, like I said, operatic, which... Uh, we sort of end up with almost a Gilbert and Sullivan kind of, and there are references to Gilbert and Sullivan in the show as well. Yeah, oh, and the original Simpsons right. episode. So this very kind of conceived, full, fully formed theatrical production. Yes, very presentational. So one of the, the things that interested me, it's funny, when we read this show a year or so ago, my initial reaction was, man, I love Act 1 and 2. Act 3, it kind of falls apart for me because it gets a little too... Crazy, a little too out there, a little too over the and top. I was the exact opposite. I went, yeah, Acts 1 and 2 are cool, but Acts 3 is amazing. Yeah, so I think this is definitely a show where, you know, people leave maybe not sure of what it was that they just saw, mm. um, but I'm okay with that <laughs> as, a, as a producer, mm -hmm. and I, I think all three of us here are. Mm -hmm. um, what I think has been really cool is to hear people a couple days after they see it, you know, if you happen to run into someone and, and they mention like, oh, I've been thinking about that show, and you know, a specific piece maybe resonated with them that, that in the initial kind of consumption of it, you're so caught up in the experience that you maybe don't pick it apart, but there are those things that stick with you afterward. Mm -hmm. um, for me, one of the things that is interesting is that it starts after this sort of shared tragedy, this shared whatever mm -hmm. incident was that they deliberately keep vague and I think, you know, whatever age you are, whatever point of your life you're in, you maybe think to a certain kind of cultural benchmark um, that felt like that. And for me, at, at my age, it was 9-11, being, you know, 18 at that point and, and in college, the, the kind of way that things changed, and I was a theater major at the time, so the way that art changed in response to that tragedy, to that incident, um, is interesting. And I think certainly now we're seeing um, art reflect what's happening in the world. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about that. Let's talk about the role of theater and how theater kind of mirrors or, or gives us a lens in which to process the world we live in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, when you were talking, this isn't theater, but this is art. I had this image of like, think of all these crazy artifacts that we have. Um, I was also listening to this podcast about like, ancient uh ice ages and stuff and like aliens? not ancient aliens though that is one of my favorite shows not because the alien part because it's like super cool yeah. like three quarters ancient of the way through and maintained. oh my gosh like yeah that is weird these like the blah, blah blah the aliens no 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 you missed it okay but um like we go to these uh museums and stuff when i was in greece doing 
uh, some theater in grad school. Every time they try to put up a building, they have to stop. Like it's just part of like what they expect anymore because they're gonna run into some sort of dig site, right. and then becomes this whole big excavation. But all these like pots and. Uh, trinkets and uh, dolls and things that we have in museums is these like holy relics when actually they were like like this is something I put grain in this yeah. is like not but be, but the fact that it was found and it had been so long it is now this different thing so this artifact which was an everyday thing is risen to this grand yeah. level which is kind of what you're talking about it's with the really show is actually there's a specific occurrence of that happening uh. uh in playing cards and drinking hot cocoa uh-huh. Is is in the third act elevated to be this very like a religious ritual, yeah, yeah, event where it's just casually mentioned in the first two acts, and you can probably ninety percent of the people miss it. There, yeah. are, there are also two great little. There are actually many little musical Easter eggs that Michael Friedman, uh, the the composer who unfortunately has passed away way too soon, is also the composer of Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson. Um, Another great show that we were really happy to work on. But two specific musical Easter eggs that pop up in Act 3. One is when Kent Brockman, the, the newscaster, uh, kind of delivers some uh, exposition, more or less, to the audience oh, underneath his... Actually, it's not Kent Brockman because they misinterpret it, and it's Troy McClure. You're right. You're mm. absolutely right. And so, again, it evolves. But as he speaks, we hear these three musical tones underneath him which happened to be the chords from NBC. Ah. So it's the idea that, that that's now just an association with news, right? Oh, that, yeah, that yeah. That's just something that they remember. Those chimes meant that, you know, the NBC Nightly I News was starting. I love that kind of stuff, the evolution of symbology. Right, and the, the other great Easter egg that I didn't notice watching the show, but noticed it a couple days later when I was watching TV and the emergency broadcast system did a required weekly test and those three, like, eh, eh, you know, that kind of buzzer sound, the, the chords in the opening, no when way. they're describing that, that event that happened, you hear those emergency alert tones in the music. Ah. And I just thought, man, that's such that's a so cool, clever. and I think that is that, you know, discovering those artifacts mm-hmm. from that, that bygone era. That, yeah. At least in this world, they're still within a time period where, you know, they're 79 years in. Mm-hmm. People are alive who remember that, or at least people who maybe wrote this material earlier. Were yeah, so yeah, yeah. Well, in times of troubles, we turn to our rituals, right? We turn to those practices we do that make us feel tied to something bigger or tied to a community, and and even if it's something as like, well, this is it's good luck. Like we're not, we're in a theater right now, so we're not going to say Macbeth. I just did, I or will. like um, <laughs> you know these little rituals that we don't even know why we do them. We right. just do them, right. and it binds us. It ties us together to a community, um, be it religious or what have you. Um, we turn to those in times of trouble, right? Um, and theater has its roots in religious ritual. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, it starts even before the ancient Greeks. It starts in this idea of shamanistic experiences of we're going to retell the story of the hunt we just had, and oh, we had a better hunt, so we're going to do this story of the hunt every time, and this becomes our ritual before hunt. And now we, and when we think about like how, how one defines theater, there is an aspect to theater usually of 
pretending to be someone else. And even that, that is a shamanistic experience. Yeah. That is the holy, the holy person of the group um, embodying the hunted animal. Now we're not just talking about hunting the animals, we are the hunted animals. Um, and so I think, yeah, theater has its roots in that, in that it's our collective story and storytelling. We know our stories because we tell them. Yeah. That's how we know who we are. It's really interesting you brought up the, the religious aspect too of, of theater because I think it might be my favorite character. It's a character who doesn't even show up until act three, uh, played by Peggy Hauser. Uh, Named Edna after Edna Krabappel. Yeah, the, ah, the teacher. Um, I did know that. But she is basically the the narrator of Act Three, and we styled her and kind of used her in this very kind of priestess, very earthy way of describing the story, kind of manifesting the story through her, uh, because the she stood out as this character that was very different from everything else that's happening in Act 3. And I personally struggled with that for, for a bit, trying to figure out, okay, what, what do we do with this? And then it sort of clicked. Yeah, and she's the first one on stage in Act 3, and Act 3 begins by basically their dramatic recounting of, or representation of, the, the tragic event that caused the, the loss of power. And, uh, and it's so she's almost telling their origin story in that mm. moment. So it does kind of take on this, you know, religious kind of... And there is a, there's a whole moment where there's, there's a reading of names and a singing of names, uh, which is a callback to the, the first act in which these are names of people they're looking for. Mm. So people who they don't know if they're dead or alive mm -hmm. after this accident. And these same names now are being spoken and sung yeah. by Peggy, Edna, uh, in this very kind of ceremonious way, this very religious mm. way. Which again, for me, connecting it to you know things that you experience in your own lifetime, I think of the 9-11 memorial, the, mm. the dedication they have every year where they read the names of the 3,000 some people who perished on 9-11, and it has that that weight and that yeah. heaviness to it, which I think for audience members in Mr. Burns is probably surprising, yeah. given the, the show up until that point, not really having that sort of heaviness to it. It flips a it lot. Does. It, it does, it does. You go from, from very deep to very comedic quickly. I, I think a few lines after that or before that, there's a, there's a reference to living la vida loca right. in there. <laughs> So it <laughs> song lyrics that suddenly pop up, that, right? Yeah, or 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 uh, toxic. By, Which by again, Britney if you Spears. think about like these bits and fragments we have of songs sung, like I partake in this women's uh, circle that is a, like a monthly thing, and part of that it has a, a, a couple different traditions. And we sing these songs, and I don't know what we're saying, but we sing them, and they they mean something to us right. in this feminine uh, circle of power. But I've like, if you take those songs, I then sing those songs to my kid at night. Like, 
when I can't get them to stop crying, usually our go-to is Twinkle Twinkle. <laughs> but if that doesn't work, I sing these songs because I know them and they repeat and they now mean this new thing. Yeah. And it doesn't feel like I'm being disingenuous to these songs or to the meaning because I'm using them for a purpose that happens to be in a line with those things we talk about, but right. still the evolution of those things, which then makes me think about these lullabies that I sing to my kid, like Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Once you've sung it a thousand times and you come up with different riffs because you are just so tired, yeah. like they, it does, like it becomes this new thing and this like ancient song of sleep, right? like well, a spell. And, and thinking about the show flipping and, and when, when, shows are responding to or when things happen in the world and obviously that's going to affect how what people write what people produce it seems like there are typically two directions that you go in either you go away from what has happened into this escapism so that we can watch the movie and not think about the bad thing that mm -hmm. happened or they focus right in on what is that thing that that we're dealing with mm -hmm. and let's respond to it but i think that even when we go away from the thing you can't help escape the thing. Right. You are now filtering the thing through what happened. So I think about Saturday so Night Live. the absence of the thing becomes the thing. It, sometimes, the vacuum. But I think about when Saturday Night Live came, you know, that week after 9-11, and people were like, I don't know, do yeah. we do? Do we do Saturday Night Live? And they, they did it. And, like, be funny? everything. Why start now? Yeah. 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 Everything was filtered through the thing. And, like, yeah, it's, it becomes your frame. Yeah, you know, and so part of the healing process is to well, how do I how do I approach this world through this frame? Am I allowed to laugh now that this big thing has happened? Yeah. This big terrible thing, and but our history is full of big terrible things. Right. So, but look at those terrible things, and then look, look at, at the art. What, yeah, what comes out of yeah. it? Yeah, you know the the response that people have, and the not to get too heavy, I'm going to get real heavy. The enduring human spirit, there right? That is. art is where That's we go. That's our heavy part. That's yeah. nice. Yeah. You know, one thing that I thought was interesting and, and cool about the show and, and made me think more uh, about the future in this very <laughs> abstract sense uh, is we have uh, Shakespeare Summer Nights mm -hmm. that Gannon does and it's a great opportunity to do some Shakespeare, which is a lot of fun. And I found myself thinking a lot about that during uh, Act 3, when there are these large archetypal characters, and how in a lot of contemporary productions, like the one done by the public, uh, um, where they, they styled yeah. uh, Caesar, and how... A production like is done in Act Three of Mr. Burns. <laughs> Mr. Burns could be styled in a number of different ways to represent whatever is going on at the time. You know, Bart can be styled as whatever they need Bart to be at that right. moment. Right. Yeah, when we were devising Ape Essence, I remember that we had a lot of iterations of how that process was going to go. Um, and there was a lot of, it was very political, and there were a lot of questions of, like, who these, the other, who right. is the person who caused this thing, and it, we started devising that right after the elections, and, like, there, we talk about walls and all that kind yeah. of stuff. So, like, 
it went very originally, like we had some pretty literal ideas and then we got away from that. Yeah. But you're right, you're absolutely right that these, uh, that's the benefit of stock characters, I think. We think about stock characters nowadays as being stereotypes of being like, oh, it's a teen movie, so you've got the jock and the goth and the this and the that. But then that's watered down. Right. But they have a rich history of being archetypes, which is the purest form, the, the biggest, purest form, and like a Jungian sense of you know, tying us all together. And the benefit of it being those archetype or those stock characters is like, I know who that is. I know exactly who that is. And I, as the audience, can put who I need to be on there. And it makes me, the audience, more invested. It makes me feel really smart. Mm -hmm. um, And it makes me get something out of it. So it's, it's it's a cool way for a storyteller to, like, have many different stories play at the same time. Yeah, and I think one of the the things that I liked about the direction that, Michael, you took the production in was, you know, the script calls for masks in Act 3, which can mean any number of things if you look at how masks are used in theater. I'm looking at you, Elena. hey Uh, But the direction you chose to go and whether an audience member picked this up or not, almost, I'm going to say almost doesn't matter, was to, to look at Commedia and to look at those Commedia characters as you know, who are the ones that most closely parallel mm. the Simpsons characters? And the one that you know, helping you from a design standpoint that that I struggled with was who is Homer? And what's really cool to me is that in Act Three, Homer is so removed from the cartoon character, the drunken buffoon kind of character, that the Commedia stock character we went with was was a. Uh, Capitano, right? Mm-hmm. To, to make him ah. that father figure. So, Elena, you, yeah. you didn't have a chance to see the show, I which is not. fine. And I'm working on a comedia piece right now, which is fun. So, Capitano yeah. would be what? Capitano is uh, usually somebody who is not from that area. Classically, he was Spanish. And um, he is uh, a character who, uh, and usually a soldier, he appears very brave, brazenly brave. Uh, he usually has a really big nose and a really big sword to compensate mm-hmm. for small things. And uh, the classic joke there being like, I want to fight, I want to fight. Okay, let's fight. No, I can't fight. Or like, I'm really brave, I'm really brave. Oh, a mouse shows up. So, and then that's his thing. He's a braggart. Um, so you can sort of see how you might get to Capitano from Homer Simpson. No, but no, I'm excited no. to see it. No, no. In my mind, like, and Michael and I didn't talk about things. In my mind, he is Il Dottoro, like, who is a professorial type, which doesn't sound like Homer, right. but he talks and talks and talks and says nothing, right. which is what Homer does. He talks and talks. He tends to be uh, bigger, and he tends to be, like, a drunk, buffoon-type yeah. But not a zany. You could also say uh, a zany, which would be the servant type of strata. There's masters, servants, and lovers. Right. Homer's a servant, right? He's a he's a blue collar working type, um, and uh, Dottoro is usually a master. So, in, but he's a dad. The, and, and then you have Burns, who literally Pantalone. is he's Pantalone. Pantalone. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and in in this production, the the way that Homer kind of gets to Capitano is this idea of. The, the father, the protector, the sort of idealized guy. They've but who, elevated him. Right, right. But who ultimately, when he tries to, to defend his family, he's, you know, he's the first to fall. He's the first person that, mm. that Burns kills in mm-hmm. Act 3. And yeah. since the production is closing, I don't feel like that's a spoiler. Yeah. Um, no. But yeah, so, but it, and at the same time, 
Commedia was the influence. That's right? interesting. There was no, there was no, we are locked in and this yeah, is a Commedia Commedia was definitely the jumping off point, especially when it came to helping the actors because, I mean, I, I looked at Act 3 and I was like, oh boy. And then the right. actors looked at Act 3 and they went, oh boy. And I really think that delving into Commedia and, and letting people explore externally rather than internally mm. helped a lot. Well, Comedia, I took a yeah. lot of that from learning from Elena. Yeah, thank you. Well, it is a very external style and it is very stock character style. And from, the, I mean, Simpsons is full of stock characters and that is a Comedia type thing. And you, uh, there are um, some Gannon students in this production and they have trained you know, with me and with Gannon, and so they are aware of that. So I think that's a smart way of going about it. And one of the things that I thought was really cool in the rehearsal process was um, one of the one of the actors, Pat Washington, who hasn't done a ton of theater, but is, is such an enthusiastic participant. The I think after the Commedia concept was introduced in rehearsal, Pat came up to me and said, "Man, that's really cool. That gave me a sense of what I'm supposed to be doing, where I'm trying to go." in terms of developing a character. So yeah. it's cool when we can kind of pull from those little bag of, the, the bag of tricks of things throughout history. And Yeah, externals are great. Yeah. And what's cool is that in Comedia, the characters are literally called masks. Um, because right. the idea of a mask went from like a literal mask you wear to the character itself. Right. And it's, it's funny because we had, <laughs> we had this issue of, okay, we have uh, Homer dots. Mm -hmm. uh, what do we do with his body? Mm -hmm. And actually one of the actors, the one who plays Burns, uh, Colin, he, he had this idea of, well, let's take the mask off. Mm. And mm -hmm. so Ooh. that became the way that Homer dies. So then in that moment when, when Homer's dead, the mask is carried off and the actor follows, but mm -hmm. essentially at that moment, the mask is the dead character. Yeah. And... Pat Washington is the actor yeah, who's clearing himself from the, the stage. That's really strong. I can't wait to see that. That's a strong choice. <laughs> well, tonight's your last chance. bold, yeah. Okay, well, for the sake of time, let's jump to our final thing that we like to do here, which is the list. I don't know if, oh. if anybody has anything for the list, but that's mm. where we like to throw out an idea or something that you should read, watch, see. Um, anybody want to jump in first with an offering for the list? Oh, I, I have one. Yeah. Go for it. I mean, does it have to be recent? No, it can be whatever you want. Well, everybody should watch Mr. Robot. Oh, okay. Mr. Robot. It's a TV show. Uh, it has fantastic writing, fantastic acting, uh, superb cinematography. Um, it's the kind of show that you're not just going to binge through because... Mm. It can take a you lot need out some time of you. to process. Yeah, you need some time to process it. Uh, but it's something that you can really sink your teeth into and kind of digest over a long period of time. Um, All right, check out Mr. Robot. I'm going to throw out there uh, a play that's actually coming up in our current season because I just reread it in preparation for, um, for directing it, and that's The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. Uh, there's a novel that was the starting point. There is an audiobook. There's the play that you can get online. 
the, the script online for, for Kindle or your preferred method. Um, always a good idea if you're interested in auditioning to read the show and be familiar with it ahead of time. So check that one out for sure. And anything by Simon Stevens. Um, we did Heisenberg earlier in the season, his, another play of his. So read plays. Yeah. They're we, short reads too. Are we sponsored by Audible? We are not sponsored by Audible. Maybe this will get Yet. us a sponsorship. But I am drinking Audible. my Ember and Forge coffee. Ember and Forge, thanks for supporting Mr. Burns. Yay. Um, I have a 15 month at home, so we watch a lot of Pocoyo, uh, which is uh, voiced by Stephen Fry, which is great. That's awesome. Yeah, it's a, it's a Spanish cartoon that's in the style of like old Nintendo, kind of, and it's voice is po called Pocoyo. And then Word Party, which is a little bit <laughs> verging on that what is that valley of uncanniness because it's it's uh it's animated but it's kind of too real okay. and it's jim henson and then for me on audible i've been listening to gabby bernstein gabrielle bernstein's uh judgment detox turns out i'm pretty judgy so I and never my Myers-Briggs had me as a P, but I think I'm a big old J. So I've been uh, I've working on my J. You're a big old J. Thanks. That's what I'm doing. I'm also a big old J. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, also take the Briggs-Myers personality test and see where you fall. Well, that's also let's on the go list. around. And do you know your INFP? You're an INFP. I'm I'm ENTJ. Opposites. I don't remember, but I'm an introvert. I will tell you You're that. You're a big much. old I. I am a. I started as an, an E, but now I'm an I. I'm an E that doesn't like people. Mm. I like. Difficult. My ideal thing would be like at a bar where there are people, but they're not talking to me. Right. Unless I want to be so on. So are you just like watching them? No, just no, like, I, I just, just like being around people because if I'm alone, it could get kind of kind of. Okay. It makes you an E. Does it? Yeah. But I don't want to talk to them. I just want that them. I want to watch them. It's, but me, I don't want to be on all the time. I get exhausted. You're an extrovert if you draw energy from people being around you. So like, oh. if you put me in a room alone, I go nuts. Maybe I am an E. Which makes me not an I. Mm. I used to be an E every so often. I, but maybe all I really want is to sleep. <laughs> well, that, and, I think that's. And when you a, have a little person like right. literally on you all the time, right. it's just like, oh God, I love you, but no. <laughs> and I mean, Max, that's my husband. <laughs> then right. you know, they're all and kid they in there. Baby. Oh yeah. my God. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it seems to me that's as good a place as yeah. Any that's to end we're this done. Edition of Shop Talk. <laughs> if you didn't see Mr. Burns, uh, well, I'm sorry for you. I wish you would have. It was a fantastic uh, production, dedicated cast who worked really, really hard on this one. Michael, congratulations on a solid run. Thank you. I was fueled by Ember and Forge coffee. Oh man, there you go. <laughs> Drama Shop fueled by Ember and Forge. I like that, yeah, Hannah. Yeah. We gotta talk. All right, folks, thanks for listening to Shop Talk. A shout-out to our producer, wonderful Nicole Lossie, who sits quietly and waves at us during the podcast. She doesn't even roll her eyes. Like, I would totally roll her eyes. Uh, from where I'm sitting, about. I think there oh, were a few eye rolls. That's good. Anyway, folks, thanks for listening to Shop Talk. We'll see you next time. Bye. And thanks for supporting Drama Shop, theater in process. <laughs>